Well, good morning, church family. I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm excited to be looking at the text today of Psalm 91. Now, I know what you're thinking. I love this psalm. Probably the most popular psalm in today's culture would be Psalm 23. We hear it so often. We quote it so often. But I would think a close second would have to be Psalm 91. And if you say, I don't remember exactly what's in there, as we get in there, you're going to say, oh, yes, I've prayed that many times. Oh, yes, I've heard Brother Steve pray that many times. And so I'm excited today about looking at the byproducts of dwelling in the presence of God. The byproducts of dwelling in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we love that you love us. Lord, you care about us. And Lord, I thank you. We can dwell in your presence. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray today they will give their lives to you. And Lord, if there's someone in here that has not or is not dwelling in your presence, God, I pray you'll draw them close to yourself as only you can do. And I pray this in your precious name, amen. Well, let's look at the first couple verses here in Psalm 91. Let's look at verse one. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. The first thing I want us to see this morning is one of the first byproduct of being in the presence and dwelling in the presence of God is a deeper understanding of the person of God. A deeper understanding of the person of God. Notice that in these first two verses, there are four different names used to describe God. Now, if we look throughout scripture, you will see hundreds of different descriptions of who God is because there is no word that can encompass who he is. And so as we look here, there are four different names used just to describe him. You see, when you dwell in the presence of God, when you get into the presence of God, you begin to see him differently and understand him deeper and have a more intimate relationship with him. When my wife and I, have conversation and we go on dates and we go on vacations together and we spend time together dialoguing and talking, we begin to understand each other on a deeper level. Intimacy brings that, a deeper understanding of the other person. So let's look at this. In verse one it says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high. This is the first words used to, to describe God. Most high. The Hebrew word there is Elion meaning God most high. So it's important that we understand he's not talking about a God with a little g. He's not talking about an idol made by man that some people are worshiping. He's talking about the God of all gods, the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 97 verse nine says, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. He is God the most high. Look at the next word that he uses here at the end of verse one. And will abide in the shadow of the almighty. Now see that? Almighty. Not only is he the God of all gods, he is the God that is almighty. The Hebrew word here is Shaddai, meaning all powerful, omnipotent, the one that can do everything he says he can do. That's who he is. He's the one that can do everything he says he can do. I love that. He has all power. If I was to hand out a little piece of paper to everyone in this room 
and just for entertainment purposes, ask you to write down on it your favorite superhero and turn them in, we would get all kinds of them. We would have Spider-Man and Superman and Batman and we would have Iron Man and all these different superheroes that we enjoy watching on movies or TVs and we would pick one based off the power that we enjoy they have. But it's fictitious. It's not real. And if one of them had all the power, the other ones wouldn't be needed. That's the God we're talking about. He has all power. There is no other God needed because he has everything in himself. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. Look at verse two. Well, before we do that, Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He has all power. Look at verse two. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, third word used here to talk about God, the word Lord. The Hebrew word here, Yahweh or Jehovah, meaning the relatable God, the relational God. He's the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember that? Moses is standing before the burning bush. He's taken his shoes off. He's fallen before the burning bush. And God is speaking to him. And God is telling him to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am. I am that I am. That's who he is. He is the relatable God. He is the God that was there speaking to Moses. You see, oftentimes I think we have a warped idea of who he is, that he's so distant and he's up there and he's away from us and he doesn't understand our intimate problems. Can I just make a statement to you? God hasn't gone anywhere. He is right here and he is available to all people. And maybe, just maybe, he doesn't, in your mind, know where you are because you're not talking to him about it. You're not seeking to dwell in his presence. Psalm 27 verse one says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? He is the Lord, the close, relationable, relatable God. Look at the end of verse two, it says, my God in whom I trust. Fourth word he's used here, to describe the Lord, the word God. Hebrew word is Elohim, meaning God, creator of all things. The exact same word that is used in Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God. Don't miss that. Before time began, he was there. He spoke the world into existence. That's the God we're talking about. He is the God above all gods. He is the almighty God. He is the relational God, and he is the creator God. That's the God that we are given the privilege to dwell in his presence. Now, I want you to just stop for just a moment and think, how is this even possible? That that God, the one that spoke the world into existence, would give you and I the opportunity to enter into his presence. You and I are unworthy. We don't deserve to be in his presence. But thank goodness, the blood of Jesus Christ gives us access to the presence of God. So number one, a deeper understanding of the person of God. Look at verse three. It says, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Not only 
is a byproduct of dwelling in the presence of God, a deeper understanding of the person of God. It is a clearer view of the power of God. You see, when you and I get into the presence of God, we have a clearer view of what he's doing. You see, I believe God's at work all around us. And I believe you and I miss it all the time. I believe you and I sometimes think that when this book was finished written that he quit performing miracles and he quit doing the things that he did in here. Well, is he God or is he God? He says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Could it be he is at work? You and I are just not paying attention. A few years ago, my family and I were sitting on one of the baseball fields with our life group watching the fireworks display. And it was way up in the sky and those fireworks were huge. They were the width of this church. They were massive. Every color you can imagine and you could just hear this all over. Ooh, ah, I love that one. That one's my favorite color. And we were just sitting back and just saying how amazing all of these fireworks were. And all of a sudden, I looked down about 20 feet in front of us and right by the fence, there's a whole bunch of our children and they're pretty young at this age. And they all have these little glow sticks that we bought at the Dollar Tree. You know the ones that you get in the little package and you break the glass in there and you shake it up and that neon liquid shines real bright. And they have little bracelets and necklaces and little wands. All of our children are sitting down there staring down here at these little bitty lights that only glow for just a little bit and they're missing the magnificence of what is up in the sky. And I kind of chuckled. And then I felt the Lord say to me, this is you. I'm at work all around you, but you're so busy with your glow stick, with your head down, not paying attention to anything I'm doing. Henry Blackaby says in his study, Experiencing God, find out where God's at work and then just join in. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God wants you to join in in what he's doing? The answer there is yes. You see, when we get into the presence of God, we have a clearer view of the power of God. And you know, I think Job had a great understanding of this. Job says in Job 26, beginning in verse seven, now I want you to listen to the language he uses and the imagery he gives, the picture he paints about the power of God. He says about God, he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power and by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his way. And how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? I love that. I love the imagery he gives about the cloud, the soft, fluffy cloud that's holding all this water in and can't bring forth the rain unless God allows it. That's the power of God. But notice what he says in verse 14, behold, these are the fringes of his ways. 
In other words, this is the tip of the iceberg of his power. You see, I think that if God had given Moses a glimpse at the burning bush of all the plagues that he was about to do on Egypt and how he was going to deliver them through the Red Sea, Moses wouldn't have been able to handle it. He would not have been able to handle that much power of God. God just gave him a little bit. But the more he walked with the Lord, the more power he saw the Lord had. And I think oftentimes you and I don't go to the Lord with our issues because we don't think that he's gonna help us through them. But he's the God that has all power. And as we dwell in his presence, we have a clearer view of the power of God. Well, now let's look at verse four in Psalm 91. It says, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or at the destruction that lays waste at noon. Notice what he says. The devil is coming after you at every moment of the day. He's coming after you in the morning. He's coming after you at noon. He's coming after you in the darkness. He is coming after you with everything he's got because his whole desire is to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to steal your joy. And notice it says God will protect us. A thousand may fall at your side in verse seven and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. He will give his angels charge concerning you. The third byproduct of dwelling in the presence of God is a larger covering of the protection of God. A larger covering of the protection of God. When you get into God's presence, you have more of an umbrella of protection over you. And I know what you're thinking. Does this mean if something bad happens to me, I'm not walking with Jesus? No. Because you look at what happened to Job. Job was walking with the Lord and God told the devil, hey, go check out my boy Job down there. So the devil's gonna come after you no matter where you are. But I just want you to know when you walk closely with the Lord, you have a larger protection and a larger covering. You see, I know so many people that try to walk in the presence of the Lord while holding the hand of the devil. They try to straddle the fence. They want their cake and they want to be able to eat it too. I want to go to church and be in God's presence, but I want to live my life how I want to. Can I just say this? If you are not walking with the Lord, then you're walking away from him. Our family loves to be outdoors. We love everything about outdoors. We love foot golf. We love disc golf. We love regular golf. We love basketball and soccer. We love to ride our bikes. We just enjoy being outside as a family. If I tell my four children, go get the bikes and set them by my truck, you're gonna hear shrieks and yells because they are so excited because they know exactly where we're going. 
What this means is we're gonna load them in the back of our truck, we're gonna drive over off Walnut Grove, right across the street from where the big lake is at Shelby Farms, we're gonna park by that little water plant, we're gonna put our helmets on and get on our bikes, and we are gonna go 4.4 miles along the Wolf River Greenway to Chick-fil-A. Doesn't get much better than that. And along the way, we're gonna see the Wolf River, and sometimes we've seen deer, and we've seen squirrels and birds and turtles and snakes. We've seen all kinds of animals out there. We've seen all kinds of people. We've talked to people. We've had flat tires. We've had trees fall. We love being there. And we love going 4.4 miles. And my wife's so gifted, she has a little thing that holds her phone right there on her, on her bike. And she will actually order the Chick-fil-A from the app so that when we get there, it's nice and ready. And we go out there and they know us by name and we sit on the curb and they treat us like kings and they bring it right there and we eat that delicious chicken and Chick-fil-A sauce. Oh my, my. And then we get on our bikes and we ride 4.4 miles back to the truck and we love doing this and we try to do this as many times as we can. One of the things we do is I ride in the very back. I wanna keep my eyes on my children and my wife to make sure nothing is happening to them. My youngest daughter's usually very close by. My wife's usually close by or up a little bit in front of us. My oldest daughter's usually a little bit ahead. But the boys, well, they're just boys. And they want to ride fast and they want to go way ahead of us. And I have told them for years, don't go around all those turns where we can't see you. If something happens to you, you're out of my sight. I can't help you or protect you. But what do they do? Go around those curves and sometimes they'll get around those curves and Chloe, my youngest, will have to stop and fix her bike or tie her shoe or something and they get further and further ahead and it's frustrating. And so one day we're coming back from Chick-fil-A. They got a few turns ahead of us and as we came around the last turn, what I saw was my son's bike laying on the ground, my oldest son, and he's running towards us and the closer I get to him, I hear him yelling, Daddy, Daddy, snake, snake. And what happened was right in front of his bike, a big old long snake went right in front of him. And as he came to me and I saw the panic on his face and the tears in his eyes and we gave him a hug, I said, remember son, when you leave my sight, I can't protect you anymore. And I wanna say to you, God can do whatever he wants. He can protect you at any moment you want, that he wants but why would you remove yourself underneath the umbrella of the protection of God? A larger covering of the protection of God. Psalm 27 verse five says, for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Psalm 31, verse 20, you hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. What does it say he does? He pulls us into his secret place. Not your secret place. His secret place. It talks about back there in, in verse one. It says back there, it says, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. You see, I know people that are so concerned about having the shadow and covering of their retirement plan being just perfect and their bank account being just right and they feel protected when they're in their home 
and they feel most protected when they're with an individual, maybe their spouse, and they want to be underneath the covering, underneath the shadow that these things have to offer. But can I just tell you that a very dear friend of mine on his birthday Friday morning, his house burned down and he lost everything he owned. You see, when we put our trust in things, those things will leave us. But God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It is his shadow that we are to be in, in the presence of God. So a deeper understanding of the person of God, a clearer view of the power of God, a larger covering of the protection of God, and I want us to look at the last three verses for this final point. You say, boy, you're gonna be done quick. Just hang tight. (laughs) What's interesting is scholars tell us they believe Moses wrote this. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine Moses actually sat there at the burning bush in the presence of God. So when he writes this, he's writing, he says in verse one, he who dwells, and verses one through 13 is him talking about us, believers, Christians that are dwelling in the presence of God, but it all changes in verse 14. It's no longer Moses speaking, look what happens here. There's quotations around it, verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Now this is not talking about Moses. Moses can't deliver anybody. This is now God speaking. We've gone from Moses talking in the first 13 verses to now God talking in the last three. Because he loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. I want you to see number four, a byproduct of dwelling in the presence of God is a greater claim to the promises of God. A greater claim to the promises of God. Aren't you glad that he's a God of promises? All throughout his word were given promises. He put the rainbow in the sky to remind us that he promised he would never flood the earth. He tells us in Romans that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead, you will be saved. Can I just make a statement? When God says will, it is gonna happen. It's not maybe, might, can, hopefully, or probably. It is will. I want you to look at this when we're talking about the promises of God. It says in 2 Peter 1.4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What does he say? As joint heirs of the kingdom of God, we can be partakers in his promises. And look at all the promises he gives us in these last three verses. Straight from the mouth of God. What does he say? Let's put verses 14 through 16 back on the screen. It says, because he loved me, I will deliver him. What do you get when you're in the presence of God, dwelling in the presence of God? You get deliverance. He says, I will set him securely on high. What will he do? He will lift you high up. 
I will set him securely on because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. What do you get when you dwell in the presence of God? God will answer you when you call on him. I will be with him in times of trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Look at all these things. I will deliver him. I will secure him. I will answer him. I will be with him in times of trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. He gives us eight promises right here that if we will dwell in the presence of God, we'll have a greater claim to these promises. But you see, the issue is this. Most people, as Drew was talking about at the beginning of service, of just sitting in the presence of God, most people never experience this. See, I believe people look at the dwelling in the presence of God in one of four ways. The first way I think they look at it is as a bucket list item. You've got things on your bucket list. You wanna go to the World Series? and watch your favorite team play, you wanna go to Hawaii, you wanna travel Europe, you, got all, you wanna jump out of a plane, whoever would wanna do that, I don't understand, you wanna bungee jump, all these things. Can I just say the presence of God doesn't belong on your bucket list? Those are things you hope to get to do one day. I'm telling you, you have access to the presence of God right now, right now. You see, all Throughout the Old Testament, we read about the tabernacle and how the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, that secret place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and this was the representation of the presence of God where he would rest down in the Holy of Holies. And only one time a year would the high priest go into the Holy of Holies. And he better be prayed up. He better be confessed up. He better have no sin in his life. Because if he walked in there with any of that, God would strike him dead. They would sometimes tie a rope around those guys so if they died in there, they could pull them out because no one else was gonna walk into there. And so you would bring your sacrifices and you would confess, but praise Jesus. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrific death and on that cross, the Bible tells us the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. No longer do you and I need a holy high priest that can go in once a year. Jesus says, I am the high priest and you have access to me at all times, day or night. Day or night. Thank you, Jesus, that it doesn't have to be a bucket list item. A second way I think people look at dwelling in the presence of God is it's a vacation destination. I, I like to go there sometimes. Occasionally I'll go on a retreat or I'll go to a conference or I'll go to a camp and I kind of get up on the mountaintop and I come back feeling great and I've had some great time with the Lord but we go right back into the world, right back to where we were. And God doesn't desire you to leave his presence. God desires you to dwell, to rest in his presence as he carries you all throughout your life. See, it's not a vacation destination. Another way I think people look at dwelling in the presence of God is a segment of their day. It's a segment of my day. I've got a prayer closet. I go into that prayer closet early in the morning. I read my Bible. That's God talking to me. And then I pray. That's me talking to God. And then I leave my prayer closet and I go to the next part of my day. 
Now I go to work and I focus on work and I come home from work and the third segment of my day is my family and I spend some time with my family and when they go to sleep, I have the fourth segment of my, of my day and that's where I watch my two or three hours of TV. And so I have a time with the Lord early in the morning but then I go on about my day. Can I just say he's not called us to be a Christian for a few minutes in the morning. He's not called us to walk with him for just a couple moments in the morning. He's not called us to dwell in his presence for just a few moments in the morning. He's called us to continually rest and dwell in his presence. And so it is not to be a segment of your day. Number four, people will sometimes look at dwelling in the presence of God as a place to reside, a place to live. Verse one says a place to dwell. I love what the King James Version says. It says dwell in the secret place of the Most High. You see, God will pull you close. The book of James says if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Another promise from God. If you do this, I will do this. See, some things God's gonna do no matter what you do. We've heard our pastor talk about this many times. But there are things God is only gonna do if you do something as well. For instance, he's not just gonna save you unless you call upon the name of the Lord. You have to repent of your sins, believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead to save you and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then it says he will save you. And so this is one of those things. He calls us to dwell in his presence. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, every child of God looks towards the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times and enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. I love that statement right there. They do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. You see, God's not going anywhere. It's your choice, it's my choice to be in his presence, to walk with the Lord. A few years ago, I went to a conference. Back when I was working in the recreation ministry, I went to a rec conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there was a missionary there that preached the very first thing we had there. And the Lord really drew me in while he was preaching. He preached on a man from the Old Testament that you can read about in 1 Chronicles or 2 Samuel. There's not a ton of information on him. There's not a ton of scripture on him, but his name is Obed-Edom. Now, I had read over his name just like you do when you're reading through numbers and you just read through everybody's name real quick just so you know that you read through all of it, but you have no idea how to pronounce any of them. I didn't know a whole lot about Obed-Edom, and as he preached and as I read, I said, this man just loved the Lord. And he has become my hero of the Old Testament. I want you to hear what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in just a moment. Let me set the context for us of where they are at at this time. The Philistines have come in and they have stolen the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. The Philistines have brought the Ark of the Covenant to their god, Dagon. They have set the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon and worshiped Dagon, who happens to just be a stone statue that somebody had formed at some point. They come in the next morning, and Dagon has fallen face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. If that's not a sign, I don't know what is. The Bible tells us that the Philistines picked Dagon up and set him back upright. 
Can I just make a statement? If you're having to help your God up, he's probably not God. They came in the next morning, and Dagon has fallen face first again, except this time his arms and legs have been severed and his head has been severed, and he's laying prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant because remember, it's a representation of the presence of God. Everybody in that city began to get boils and sickness, so they passed it to another Philistine city, and they got boils and sickness. They began to pass around everywhere it went. Boils and sickness followed it, so the Philistines... The old king called up David and said, hey, David, come get this thing. We don't want it anymore. So David gets a parade together. What do you do when you're going to be the hero of your people? You put a parade together. And you go on showing that you're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of David. And they've got music and musicians and bands and all of that stuff, and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. And remember the Ark of the Covenant, it kind of tumbled a little bit, and it looked like it was going to fall. And one man reached out and touched it, and God struck him dead. God had told them, don't ever touch the Ark of the Covenant. And that man did. Well, when that happened, David panicked. And he said, you know, maybe we shouldn't bring this back to the house of David. So what does he do with it? This is where Obed-Edom comes in. 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. And David was unwilling to move the Ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And listen to what happened. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You see, when you get into the presence of God, it changes your life, but it changes the lives of the people around you as well. Obed-Edom receives the ark of the covenant into his home, and God begins to bless Obed-Edom. Now, if we were to read on and find the other few verses about Obed-Edom, what we would realize is eventually they took the Ark of the Covenant away from Obed-Edom, but Obed-Edom had tasted and seen that the Lord was good and he just couldn't get enough of it. And so you know what he did? He went to church and the choir director said, we're looking for some people to be in the choir and he said, oh, I'll join. Anything to be in the presence of the Lord. They said, we're looking for a janitor to keep the church clean. He said, oh, I'll join, I'll clean, I'll be a janitor. They said, we need a gatekeeper. You know what Obed-Edom said? He said, I'll be a part of that. As this missionary was preaching this text, he said this. He said, Obed-Edom had gotten a taste of God's presence, and his response was, give me more, give me more, give me more. Could it be that some of you are sitting in this room and you have never tasted and seen that he is good? You have never actually sat in the presence of God so you don't know what you're missing. You see, we don't know what we don't know. But when you experience his presence, you wanna be like Obed-Edom saying, give me more, give me more. So you say, what's the application? You've said we need to be in the presence of God, but how do you do that? How do you rest in that? We have friends who have buried loved ones over the past couple weeks from two months old to in their 60s. We have a friend that has lost their house. We have friends that are going through cancer. How do they do that? It's easy sometimes to be in the presence of God when everything's great, but what happens when it's not great anymore? How do we do that? Well, let's put verses 14 through 16 back on the screen. And listen to what God says here. Because he loved me, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you love God? Now, I'm not asking you like I'm gonna ask you if you love eating at Olive Garden or if you love Chick-fil-A or if you love your spouse or if you love your children. I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? Jesus asked Peter this three times. Jesus, Peter got frustrated with Jesus. Lord, you know I love you. And he said, do you really love me? I wanna ask you a question. Do you really love Jesus? Deuteronomy says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every aspect of your being. I'm not asking you to go to church on Sunday and occasionally read a text from here and every once in a while listen to Christian music. A lot of people are doing that and they're gonna spend an eternity separated from God forever and ever. I'm asking you, do you really love Jesus? It says, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have an intimate time with Jesus where he talks to you and you talk to him if you don't? I would say to you, you've never experienced the presence of God. Because when you experience it, you want more and more. Notice he says, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Do you call upon the Lord? Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you call upon him? Do you know him? Do you love him? And do you call upon him? And I'm not just talking about when there's problems and issues and trials and tribulation. I'm saying do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Going back to the very first verse, I want us to look at one word together. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Look at the third word. He who dwells. Now this is key, don't miss this. What tense is this verb in? The present tense. Not past, he who has gotten saved and was in his presence for a moment and now is living his life however he wants. Not someone that is one day going to be in God's presence. He is saying he who is in God's presence. I submit to you that God's desire for you is to know him, to love him, and to talk to him. Do you do that on a regular basis? Some of you are in here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never been in the presence of God and you're not saved. And I think one of the biggest lies of the devil is that you can come and sit in these chairs or in other church pews, wherever you are, and you can sing a few songs and raise your hand and carry your Bible and dress nice and you can live a good life where you're kind and nice to people and die and go to hell because he has fooled us into thinking that's all there is. But can I say to you, there's so much more to the Christian life. John chapter 15 talks about abiding in Christ. I think this is what he's talking about, dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Today, if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to give your life to him. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised his son from the dead, repent of your sins, turn your back on them, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But many of you in here are Christians. And you say, you know, I've had some moments where I've experienced that. Maybe when I got saved. Or maybe a few times when Brother Steve was preaching or my life group teacher was teaching. But have you ever noticed there's certain people that just seem to walk with Jesus? They just seem to have the joy of the Lord. There used to be a sweet lady on staff here named Miss Higgy. She was a praying machine. I never once was around Miss Higgy that I ever heard a negative word for her, from her. I never saw a discouraged look on her face because she was not hiding in the shadows of temporal things that are offered here on earth. She was hiding in the shadow of the Almighty. She was spending time with Jesus. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God, that I am the Lord. And I wanna ask you this question. Are you getting still and quiet? Are you setting this to the side? Are you getting alone with Jesus and just resting in his presence? You say, I don't know if I know exactly how to do that. Take this right here. Begin to read some of it on a daily basis and begin to think about it throughout the day and begin to pray about it and begin to pray to the Lord. And don't stop that prayer conversation. The Bible says pray without ceasing. That conversation with the Lord never stops. You just keep on praying all day long. And then when you go to bed at night, you pray. And then if he wakes you up in the middle of the night, you just pray. That little family that buried their sweet little baby a couple of weeks ago have been waking up in the middle of the night and they're grieving. And I was texting with the father and he said the only place we know to go is to the Lord. We know we can trust him. We will continue to trust him. I would say to you, go to the Lord.